If you have your Bible, would you turn with me, please, to Acts and chapter 1. Acts and chapter 1. We'll read the first 14 verses. Acts 1, from verse 1 to verse 14. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptised with water, but you shall be baptised with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, white clothing, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John and Andrew. Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. Let's pray briefly once more. O oh God, will you help us this evening to hear and to profit by the word that you have given to us? Will you encourage our hearts? Will you direct our lives? Will you stir our spirits? Will you, above all things this night, O oh God, teach us to be a praying people? For we ask it through Christ, this risen and ascended Saviour and your beloved Son. Amen. Amen. As our portion this evening opens, the disciples are a little under a mile or so, we think, from Jerusalem, this Sabbath day's journey. 
It doesn't require that it be the Jewish Sabbath on which these events took place. It's a way of saying that they're not far away from the city. The Lord Christ has just been raised into heaven, ascending up in that glory cloud, taking him out of their sight. And they've just received the, not only the promises that he has made, but the reprimands that he has issued. And both of these are now ringing in their ears. Wait for the promise of the Father. John truly baptised with water, but you shall be baptised with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You shall receive power, verse 8, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Verse 11, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This Jesus, this very Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Now with such a collection of declarations from the risen Christ himself and from his angelic messengers, you might imagine that the disciples are raring to go. What next? What are they going to do with such promises and reprimands ringing in their ears? First of all, there's an obedient return. They go back to Jerusalem. It may seem a bit of an anticlimax, but this is exactly what the Lord has commanded them to do. Again, we're spending a lot of time in the end of Luke's gospel because Luke's gospel in his last few verses overlaps with the beginning of the Acts. And we've got the same kind of language then at the end of Luke's gospel, verse 46 of chapter 24. Thus it is written, thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but wait in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Notice how that's picked up in Acts 1.4. Being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Everything is going to begin in Jerusalem. This is the centre from which the good news of the Christ who died but rose again is going to roll out, first of all through that city, then through Judea and Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. We're not sure which particular upper room they go back to described in verse 13. It sounds very specific. The upper room where they were staying. <clears throat> A lot of people assume that it was the same upper room which our Lord had prepared for the Passover by sending his disciples to make everything ready. Luke chapter 22 and verse 12, you have that record of the room being prepared. We can't be confident about that. It might just be that Luke is saying it's the upper room that they all knew and that they all went to. But it is at least possible that this room holds some bittersweet memories for the men who are gathering there. And yet it seems potentially like a bit of a letdown. What would you like to happen after Christ in his glory has been lifted up by a burning cloud into the very presence of God? It feels like this is the moment when something needs to happen, perhaps something very spectacular and immediate. 
the first steps of obedience may seem quite low-key and unimpressive. But Christ, even though he is now physically absent from them, is still governing their behaviour. They are waiting and they are going at his command. So he told them to wait. Through the angels, he said, don't stand gazing. This isn't where you're supposed to be. He's told them that they need to be in Jerusalem. And that is where they go. My friends, the risen Jesus, though physically absent, governs our behaviour. It may not often seem particularly spectacular. There may be times and seasons when we wish that there was something more visible, something more impressive to do, or something more impressive at least to happen. But the waiting and the going are at Christ's command. We need to take care not to run ahead of the Lord Christ, nor to lag behind him. So often when we ask about whether or not we should do something, the problem isn't whether or not we know it, the problem is whether or not we want to do what Christ has said. Let me encourage you, without sweeping away the possibility that some of us will be called to do things that may be more distinctive, to remember that it is the simple obedience to the commands of Christ which put the people of God in the path of blessing. Some of you have heard me say often, often over the last few months when you've asked a counsel for what to do next, take the next right step. The next right step may not seem like a particularly impressive step. The next right step may not seem like a particularly prominent step. But as you follow the word and the command of the Lord God, you will find yourself in the right place at the right time you will find the right people to walk with there's a unity here that comes through a group of people who are simply doing what the lord jesus has told them to do when he tells them to do it and that honors our risen lord spectacular acts that christ has not commanded magnificent demonstrations of disobedience bring no honor to the savior it is the next right step, and it will bring us into the path of blessing. So there is then this very simple, obedient return. They went back to Jerusalem. Why? Because that's where Christ had told them to go. They know that something is going to happen. They're told to wait there and then to go when power is given to them. Look with me, secondly, at the group that is gathered in Jerusalem. You've got the obedient return, yes, but look at the gathered group. When they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. And then, as they're described as continuing with one accord in prayer and supplication, Added to that group of 11 disciples are the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the brothers of our Lord. Let's look then at this group that is gathered in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, you have 11 disciples. 
The list is almost identical, both in number and in arrangement, to that which is found in Luke chapter 6 and verse 13, when the Lord Christ has been in prayer all night in preparation for the identification of the apostles whom he will train and send. When it is day, he called the group of disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve whom he also named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. They're all there, except Judas, the man who is missing. Now, you can read this list in one of two ways. I think either way, it brings a tear to your eye and a catch to your throat. Judas, the man who had been granted the same favours and blessings as the other 11, is missing. We'll hear more about him in a coming week if God spares us. But while we may notice the absence of Judas, I think it's also good for us to notice the presence of 11 others. Peter's there. Peter had denied his Lord three times. Thomas is there. Thomas had said, unless I can see this with my own eyes, unless I can put my finger into the wounds in his hands and my hand into the wound in his side, I will not believe that he is raised from the dead. Thomas is there. And there are another nine men there, nine men plus Thomas plus Peter, who together, when they had the opportunity to stand alongside the Christ, were scattered out of carnal fear, more terrified of what the Jews and the Romans would do to them than they were attached to the Lord Christ. And yet the scattered men are gathered the ones for whom Christ had prayed that they would be his chosen witnesses to the nations, those men are now the eleven. The only one missing is the son of perdition that the scriptures might be fulfilled. That's not in itself an accident, grievous though it may be. Those eleven men preserved, restored, regathered and waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit are now gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem waiting for the promise of the Father. That's marvellous grace. It's as marvellous as the grace that makes you sit here this evening, having come back again to hear the word of God. It's the grace that has called you out of darkness into God's marvellous light. And that when you might have gone a million miles and done your own thing in your own way, yet God still preserves, secures and restores now, there is a missing name, and that is not insignificant. In the portion of God's word that follows from verse 15, there is a need that an other witness should be chosen. There's a, a real significance to the fact that 12 men are going to go out and preach the gospel that will establish the new covenant Jerusalem. There are 12 tribes and now there are 12 apostles, and that seems to be a, a deliberate parallel. And for the new Israel to be established, 
for the new people of God to be constituted, there is a need for another foundation stone laid alongside these 11 as the, the, uh, the foundation that is arranged around Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. But it's good for Theophilus to be told. Those 11 who were with him all the way, those are the 11 who are now gathered to be witnesses to him with regard to his coming and his living and his dying and his rising and his ascending. And it is a marvel of grace, not so much that one is missing, but that 11 are present and correct, waiting for the promises of Christ to them to be fulfilled. Gracious also is the fact that they are not alone. You have the women. You have Mary, the mother of Jesus. You have his brothers. Who are these women? Well, again, remember, this is Luke, volume 2. He anticipates that Theophilus, and he anticipates that we, should have at least some idea of what he said before. <clears throat> if you turn back to Luke, chapter 8, Verse 1, it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, well, they're there, and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. Again, if you look in Luke chapter 23 and verse 49, as he dies upon the cross, all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Chapter 24 and verse 1, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. <clears throat> chapter 10, uh, sorry, verse 10 of chapter 24, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told these things to the apostle. So when you read in Acts chapter 1 that the women were there, None of those who, who know this environment are going, which women are you talking about? It's those women. It's the women who had been following him so faithfully for so long, who had been supporters of the work, who had given of their substance, some of whom seemed to have been ready to stand aside boldly from the current of unbelief and antagonism, even some from Herod's household. And there were many such women of God who had been following Christ from Galilee, who had been investing in the work that he had done, who had been faithful to the end. Some of them were the first ones to seek after the Christ after when he was buried in the garden. And they were the first to see him when he had risen from the tomb. Those women are still there. They're still laboring. They're still serving. Amongst them is particularly identified Mary, the mother of Jesus. And again, we've seen her often. What was remarkable in Mary? If you turn back especially to the first two chapters of Luke's Gospel, chapter 1 and verse 38, Behold the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. In verses 40 and following, the, the, the child in Elizabeth's womb 
leaps when Elizabeth hears Mary's greeting and Elizabeth speaks, blessed are you among women, blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Verse 45, blessed is she who believed for there will be a fulfilment of those things which were told her from the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 19. Mary is the one who kept in her heart all the things that she heard when the shepherds had come to see her newborn child and who pondered them in the depths of her being. When she went to find this this little child of hers, this 12-year-old boy in the temple, when he'd stayed behind in Jerusalem. It is this Mary who asked, Son, why have you done this? Your father and I have been seeking you anxiously and received the response, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? This was the woman who was told that a sword would pierce her own heart. Mary is a remarkable woman. Her submissive faith shines forth. Even when she doesn't understand, she follows. This is her last appearance in the historical narrative. Where is she? She's gathered with the disciples. She has come to understand that her son is her saviour. And she is waiting for his promise. She understands now what it means for him to be about his father's business. And there's grace because his brothers are there. If you go back to chapter 6 of Mark's Gospel... Is this not the carpenter, asked the Jews in Galilee in verse 3, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? There's at least four of them, plus sisters, and they are known to those as part of the family. Now, what was their disposition toward the Lord Christ during the days of his ministry? Well, in chapter 7 of John's Gospel, Jesus was walking in Galilee. He didn't want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. The Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. Notice how they refer to them, your disciples. Go and show them what you're doing so that they can see. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. How painful must that have been for the incarnate Son of God. Even his own brothers did not believe in him. But somewhere along the line, God in his mercy has changed their hearts. It may have been, if you remember 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 7, that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. And we understand that to be a reference to James, his brother. Was it a resurrection appearance to James that had persuaded them? 
What we know is, chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians and verse 5, do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of our Lord and Cephas? They're all there. They're known amongst those who are the followers of Jesus Christ. Their wives are also part of that band of believers. We don't know when, but they've moved from doubt, from challenge, from unbelief, from restraint to full persuasion of the faith concerning Jesus Christ. They believe that the boy that they grew up with, their older brother according to the flesh, that Jesus of Nazareth is none other than the Christ of God and they are trusting him to make them right with the God of heaven. And they are going to play a significant role in the spreading of the good news concerning him. Some of these lists of names in scripture should make us weep. Weep with thankfulness and joy because of the people who are there. It's a marvel of grace, but it's not particularly impressive. Eleven of these men, some of them fishermen and, and others, and again, if you know some of the names, their, their backgrounds make a few of them more than a little suspect. Matthew, the, the ex-tax collector, possibly a, a freedom fighter or so in there, these, these fishermen who've been following him from the beginning. Then you've got the, uh, the women. Then you've got Mary, the mother of Jesus. Then you've got... Uh, uh, the, the, the brothers of our Lord and remember that even before they believed when the Jews looked at them they didn't think they were yeah we know these guys and we know who he's associated with you know, they were unimpressed they were offended because Christ was claiming to be something when they knew his brothers behold I send the promise of my father upon you wait until you are endued with power from on high. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You remember that Paul would later say that not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble are called and that that is itself the very platform upon which God will display his wisdom and his strength. Christ did not choose powerful people. Otherwise, it might have been their power to which all the good would have been traced. Christ chose the foolish things of the world, chose the negligible things, the base things, the things which are not, to put to shame the things which are. My friends, we never have any need to look at ourselves and say, what can we accomplish? Because the answer is, not very much at all, if anything. But if we have the power of God with us, then the excellence of that power will be seen to be of God and not of men. We should not be praying that God would send us impressive people. We should be asking that God will work by the unimpressive people who are here to impress the glory of his name upon those who hear it. Theophilus needs to know that the true witnesses of the living and the dying and the rising and the ascending of Jesus Christ 
have been preserved and restored. And it gives us confidence, first of all, that the things which have been spoken by these people are true. And secondly, that people like this, speaking God's truth in the power of the Holy Spirit, can accomplish great things. You would not have imagined, looking at them in themselves, that they might make much of an impact in Jerusalem alone, let alone in Judea and Samaria, let alone to the end of the earth. But these small, feeble band, this small, feeble band is the one that Christ will endue with power from on high to accomplish his saving purposes. And what are they doing? It brings us to the earnest prayer. They've returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, near Jerusalem. They've gone into that upper room where they were staying. Here are those 11 disciples. Here is the women. Here is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Here are the brothers. And they all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. Now, we don't know quite how they divided their days, but we are told in Luke chapter 24 and verse 53 that they were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Maybe they spent their days in the temple and maybe they spent their evenings and their nights in prayer. But their characteristic behaviour in the days after Christ's ascension is of praising and praying, praising and praying while they are waiting for the promise of the Father. And the language suggests continuing to be sustained seasons of prayer. They were not just going about their business and occasionally remembering that there was a God in heaven. These were people who were giving themselves to prayer. They were pursuing the things that God had made known there is persistence there is unity and there is sincerity they devoted themselves there was personal investment and engagement now my intention here is not to use this verse as a text to beat everybody you can't come to every prayer meeting with a big stick there are providential hindrances there are genuine reasons why not everybody can be at all of the meetings of God's people. But I think it does impress upon us the value and the significance of the physical gathering of God's people for the purpose of calling upon his name together. My friends, if we want the blessing of the Lord, we ought to devote ourselves to prayer. We ought to give ourselves to pleading. And that means that when there are occasions when we can gather, we ought to make it our priority to be amongst the saints, adding our hearts to the voice of whichever one is leading us to the throne of grace. And perhaps if we can't be here, to set aside those same seasons and to say, I will be there, I will be invested, I will be engaged. If my body cannot be present, I will in spirit meet you before the throne of our God and Father in heaven. Are we committed to this persistence in prayer? Then there's a beautiful unity in it. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. What a glorious season of prayer this must have been. Each heart united together in seeking the same mercies and favours from the God of heaven. There were no divisions among them at this time. There were no tensions. There were no suspicions. They had a single motive and a single goal. Now, 
Some of you may have been in prayer meetings where that was manifestly not the case. I remember one dreadful story, and I say this not to make anybody laugh and not to make anybody imagine that they should ever do anything remotely like this. But a man had started going to a church. He was not a particularly mature man. The congregation was clearly divided over a particular issue. When they gathered for prayer, it was very evident that there were two groups in the church who were not praying together to God, but were effectively praying against one another. And he would walk in at the back of the building, and the church would sit on two sides. And Gang A would sit on one side, and Gang B would sit on the other side. I'm not saying, I know there's a gap down the middle this evening, I'm not suggesting that that's the case here. But he, suppose he, he sort of came in and sat toward the back on that side, or came in and sat on this side. When the prayer meeting began, he thought it would be funny to stand up and, and pray with the voice of Gang A or B, depending on which side he was sitting. And then they ended up with this sort of prayer battle where having prayed from this side, somebody would then respond from that side and ask God for the opposite. And then some would pray, but can you imagine? You're surprised, aren't you, that you know, the Lord would spare... I mean, that, that's the kind of thing that you can imagine the Lord God of heaven bringing a fearful chastisement upon people who would so sully the throne of grace by making it their own personal battleground. My friends, what vileness. You know what it's like, some of you, to be in a divided prayer meeting. You know what it's like to have people who are not with you. Those who've pulled away. Those who've decided to walk in their own paths. And although you may not always recognise it at the time, when do you feel it? When that poison is leached away. And you've got united hearts and united minds and everybody is pulling together on the same rope at the throne of grace. My friends, when we pray, do we all gather with one accord? Have we come with the same motives and goals? Now, we might say, but there's so many things for us to pray for. Yes, but is there a unity of heart and of spirit? Are we aiming along the same track as directed by whomever is leading that particular service? Are we stirred by the same truths that we've recently heard to seek after the same particular blessings? Are we coming not simply to sit through a prayer meeting, but with our souls prepared to enter in behind the voices that are raised as the spokespeople of the congregation come to our God and Father and ask him for the mercies which he alone is able to give. We looked briefly this morning, we looked at the last of our catechism questions, the reason why God's people say amen when they pray. We're expressing our desire and expectation of being heard. And that's what our amens are. They're not just mumbled affirmations. They're declarations from our souls. I was listening. I was participating. I was pleading. And when that person has finished speaking, when that man has done with his business at the throne of God Almighty, I will add my amen. I am of one heart. I have been here with one accord. What he wants, we want. 
What he desires, we desire. What he has spoken, he has spoken for us. My friends, prayer that is persistent and united requires effort. Not just from the one who speaks, but from every heart that is together engaged. And then it's earnest. They all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. These were pleading people. This was praying indeed. It doesn't necessarily mean that it was loud. It doesn't necessarily mean that they worked up a sweat. It doesn't necessarily mean that there were any external demonstrations, although I, I truly imagine that there would have been some heartbroken yearnings for the blessings which God had promised. But prayer was not merely a rehearsal of empty words for these men and women. Prayer was not merely a, 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 a casual recitation or rehearsal of some old and dry needs. These men and women laid hold upon the living God. When one spoke, all the others were entering in behind if there were any sweating, I don't think it was just the person who was pleading with God. I think there were some sweating souls as they engaged with heaven. They were wrestling with the Lord. They were calling upon his name. They actually wanted things and they were determined to receive them. And like their spiritual father, Jacob, they would not let go until the Lord their God had blessed them. There was then in this small group a true spiritual harmony. Harmony of conviction. They believed the same things. Harmony of affection. They felt the same things. Harmony of action. They spoke the same things. Harmony of motivation. They desired the same things. Harmony of supplication. They pleaded the same things. And harmony of expectation. They were hoping for the same answers. What a prayer meeting. What a series of prayer meetings. What a season that must have been when for this particular period, in anticipation of the promise of the Father, the eleven, with the women, with Mary and with his brothers, they were gathering together in that upper room time after time after time, making it their business to do business with God that they might obtain the blessings. How much are our prayer meetings like this? Do we gather with this kind of focus? Do we gather with this kind of unity? Do we gather with this kind of intensity? My friends, we've known difficulties, but we've known delights. We've known something of what it is to gather, sometimes, not when there are more of us, but when there are few of us. And when there's that real singularity of purpose, and when hearts are together united, and when brother after brother stands to lead us, and the whole congregation throws their spiritual weight behind him, and the amen sounds out, because that one has spoken for us before our God, and we want what he wants, and we desire what he desires, and we expect what he expects. My friends, do we labour to be such prayers? We may be those who have the privilege of speaking, or we may be those who have the privilege of throwing our weight behind those who speak. 
But the unity that the church needs at the throne of grace is well represented by these praying men and women in Acts and chapter 1. Have you noticed? Perhaps you should. Next time you read through the Acts of the Apostles, look with the same eyes that you might look for the prayers of Christ in the Gospels. And note the occasions on which the disciples are identified as gathering to pray. As with their Lord, at most of the critical moments, before most of the great difficulties, in response to most of the great trials, and in advance of most of the great blessings, the saints of God are identified as gathered together to pray. It is both their response to need and an expression of their desire for blessing. What are they asking? Wouldn't you like to be a part of this? Wouldn't you like to be lurking somewhere in the upper room to hear this group of men and women as they gather before God and pray together? If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, Christ had said to them, will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, what have they been promised? Wait in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. When I have ascended to the right hand of my father and your father, then we will give you the Holy Spirit. And by his gracious presence and through his powerful operations, you will be made witnesses. There may have been many other things which would have entered into their praying, and legitimately so. But I suggest to you that the great cry of the disciples at this time was that the Lord Jesus would grant them that which he had promised. My friends, that's a good way for us to pray. Sometimes people will ask, Pastor, I don't know what to pray. I don't know how to pray. Some of you have heard me say it to you. Bring a promise with you. Bring a promise. Hang upon something that God has said. Do you want to know that you're praying in accordance with the will of God? Bring a promise. Do you want to be able to pray with lively faith? Bring a promise. Do you want to be able to speak in such a way that will be enter in, able to enter in behind you? Bring a promise. Do you want to be sure that you won't perhaps stumble over your words? Then, then bring a promise and we'll hear your heart even if you cannot pronounce everything that you want to pronounce. Promises believed fuel the prayers of God's people. My friends, when we pray, we're coming to a God who has spoken and whose words do not fall to the ground. If you want to pray, can you not pray at least according to the spirit the pattern of prayer which our Lord taught his disciples. Hallowed be your name. If God has taught us to pray like that, can we not pray in anticipation? Can we not desire that his kingdom would come and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven? Believe the promises of God. That's what's fueling these prayer meetings. Seek the blessings. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? 
Who is the inspirer and hearer of prayer? Who is the one who dispenses from his throne of grace the mercies and the favours that we need? My friends, we are going to our Lord and our God. We are going to our beloved Father in heaven. We are going to him who has revealed himself in his Son in covenant with his people. We are going to him who has bound himself to us, who has so allied himself to us in covenant that for him not to be God to us at every step of our journey would be to un-God himself. That's the God to whom we pray. Expect the answer. Do you say, well, of course these people knew they were going to get what they asked for. Jesus had just said to them, wait in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Father. Of course they could go and pray with faith. They just received a promise. Has any word of your Saviour's ever fallen to the ground? Is there any assurance that Christ has given you? Any word that has been revealed from heaven in this whole book? of which you will have to say, I'm not sure that I can ask for that. My friends, when you and I pray, we ought to anticipate that God will answer us if we're praying in accordance with his will. We should not come with doubts. We should not come with low expectations. Some of you will remember a man by the name of Fred Hemmett. Fred had been badly injured in his youth, in a cycling accident, to the point at which uh, he remembers, I think it was a St. John's ambulance man who kicked what he thought was his corpse and said, there's no point dealing with that one. Fred was a, a, a painfully crippled man physically, but he was one of the most faithful laborers and prayers this church ever knew. His body was often behind his voice. When Fred was talking about things rising up, he'd start doing this. But when he talked about things falling down, he was still going up. And you'd, you'd have to try to try and work out where he was going when he was talking. But Fred would quote almost every time he prayed. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such. None can ever ask too much. The man prayed in faith. One of the particular prayers that Fred would raise again and again was that this building would be filled to overflowing. You know the first time this building was filled to overflowing? Fred's funeral. He'd had such an impact upon so many people. There were people out there, through there, across there, up there. Might even have been one or two standing at the doors and looking through the windows. I'm not saying that that's the way that the Lord needs to answer your prayers. But Fred prayed in faith. And the Lord was pleased to answer many of his prayers in ways that were strikingly evident. We need to be careful, don't we? Because there's a, a nastiness in some. Have you prayed with enough faith? Because if you did, God would answer your prayers. My friends, it's not some kind of economic transaction. You bring enough faith and God will bless you with enough blessings. But the Lord honours the prayer of faith. The Lord hears the people who come before him pleading his promises, seeking his mercies and expecting his answers. 
Christ has given to us as many precious promises as he gave to these men and women. They came to the Lord, they gathered together, they waited in obedience, and they gave themselves with one accord, all of them together, to prayer and supplication. The answers to their prayers are in measure recorded in the verses that follow and in the chapters that succeed, as God, in his grace, sends the gospel out by them from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. How can you pray? How can we pray? What will we do in these days when there seems to be such darkness in the land and such weakness in the church? Do we not have promises to plead? Have we not received the Holy Spirit? And can we not ask for more of his operations in our midst? Can we not gather with one accord and plead with the God of heaven that because of a risen Christ and because of a present spirit, we might know his mercies and his favours so that weak men and women, small in number and despised by the world, may yet turn the place upside down for the praise of the glory of God's grace. Amen. Amen.